I'm Lawrence Kermare. I'm a James McGill Professor and Director of the Division of Social and Transcultural Psychiatry at McGill University, and I direct the Culture and Mental Health Research Unit at the Institute for Community and Family Psychiatry at the Jewish General Hospital here in Montreal, Canada. Welcome to the podcast. It's really great to have you here. And I guess my first question is really broad. I'm thinking about what makes an effective mental health system in a country, what the building blocks are when that country has a very diverse, multicultural population. Well, I think in thinking about mental health systems and services to meet a population, there are different kinds of diversity issues that we have to consider. Uh, you've already mentioned the issue of the diversity of the population, and that includes you know, ethnic and cultural diversity, linguistic diversity, but also many other dimensions of human experience from uh, gender to education, social class, uh, religious orientation. We, we, the list goes on and on. So we all live at the intersection of these various dimensions of identity and of our social worlds. And um, various of those dimensions are more or less important to us. I would say most of them are important. Some we're consciously aware that they're important and we're very invested in them and we expect to have them recognized in a certain way in our encounters with other people and particularly with, with social institutions like healthcare. Others maybe we're less aware of, um, we take for granted in some ways, and yet from the point of view of what research teaches us about how human behavior and experience are shaped, they might be equally important. For example, many of us live in societies that have a strong ideology of egalitarianism, so we tend to downplay something like social class. Uh, but in fact, we know it, it has a huge effect on how people live their lives, what their options are, uh, what resources they have available. Even the level of exposure that they'll have to trauma in their everyday life are very much shaped by those things. So um, a healthcare system, um, a planner, a administrator, a head of an institution, or for that matter, a clinician meeting an individual patient has to take all these sort of contexts uh, into into account. So anyway, we'll come back to that, but that's one kind of diversity that has to do with the nature of who we're working with and what their lives are constituted by and so on. Then there's the diversity of mental health problems. Uh, we're not really dealing with one thing. There's no simple single definition of what a mental health problem is. It's actually a congeries of different kinds of problems that partly for historical reasons, partly because they affect the highest levels of people's experience in terms of their self-understanding and their, their efforts to um, live out their lives and, and play social their, their, their social roles and so on, are, are affected in some ways by their conditions. But there are many different types of problems. And even in the domain of trauma-related problems, we could say, well, there are actually many different types of problems, even if post-traumatic stress disorder has been sort of the poster child for, for, for trauma-related disorders, uh, more common issues have to do with just stress-related uh, problems, which are ubiquitous in some ways. Um, and the same, uh, we'll come to again, the same events, uh, traumatic events, let's say, that lead to something like PTSD also contribute to depression, anxiety of other forms, uh, a host of problems, physical uh, illness, and, and so on. So we have diversity in the problems that people are bringing to services, and therefore uh, in the types of interventions, the types of assessment, the types of interventions that they need. So those two kinds of diversity uh, also play off against each other. They play off against each other in how people experience and express their suffering. 
they uh, they interact in terms of what people um, uh, expect from health services and what's going to sort of meet their needs. And I guess there's a final uh, kind of diversity to think about within our own health services, the diversity of the health workforce, uh, the diversity of the different kinds of um, professions, all, all the other factors that shape what is on offer to people when, when they come for help. So when we're thinking of ideal healthcare systems, we're hoping that there's some way to align uh, these different kinds of, of um, diversity so that people are accurately seen, uh, that they're seen in terms of what their real issues and concerns are, and that there's some kind of an appropriate response that fits their their predicament. And the key word there, I guess, is intersectionality. And, you know, you're very clear there that you need to broaden it out. It's not just about multicultural population. It's about all the, you know, diversity that we have. How well do you think services are currently set up? Obviously, this is a big question because it's a global question to, to provide appropriate services for that level of diversity. Do you think we're really early on in that journey? Do you think we haven't started it or are we doing it really well? Well, I think we're early on in the journey. I think we have started. And I think particularly in recent years, there's been uh, increasing recognition of, first of all, the inequities that exist in different societies based on these uh, facets of people's identity and uh, the beginnings of a more sincere effort to try to engage with them. We've been hampered uh, by a number of things. First off, I guess, is the inability to see certain kinds of differences for ideological reasons or for whatever discomfort, uh, you know, one of the most recent ones uh, have to do a lot with uh, fluidity and complexity of people's gender identity and sexual orientation and so on. So we sort of recognizing now that these don't fit into a few simple categories and uh, we need to have a much more differentiated way of having conversations with people about this and figuring out what, what, what's helpful to them. Uh, the approach to to the extent that different kinds of diversity are recognized and are deemed worthy of serious attention, uh, rather than just telling people, many societies, let's say, that have lots of newcomers will just say, well, just get with the system, just learn how to navigate the system. And, you know, we, uh, we have in, in countries like ours that have uh, some degree of socialized medicine, uh, people will just be told, well, you have access to care, so it's not a problem, just learn how to use it properly, rather than the notion that maybe there's a lot of assumptions that go into that and a lot of uh, adjustments that need to be made. In any event, if we certain kinds of difference we recognize and maybe we begin to engage with them, but the way that we engage with them has been uh, a, a serious challenge uh, to think through. Um, and the ways that have sort of dominated in different places reflect local ideologies of um, of citizenship, of identity, and so on. Uh, some years ago, I wrote a paper with Harry Minas, actually, from Melbourne on different strategies, cross-national comparison of different strategies for dealing with diversity in uh, mental health care systems. So the dominant paradigm, come, as, as in many areas of mental health, comes from the U.S. because you know it's a big knowledge producer and it's typically framed not as here's the thing that seems to work or we hope will work in the U.S., but here's the way to do things. You know, here's the 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 uh, cutting edge or the latest thing. So they, uh, for a variety of reasons, sort of recognized uh, different ethno-racial blocks. So racialized identity is very important in the U.S. because of the massive history of, of slavery. And, you know, it's something that's very much in people's awareness today because of some efforts to, to uh, deal with these uh, the violence and the inequities. Um, so because of identifying these large, these five sort of large ethno-racial blocks, they could 
conceived of the challenge of diversity in terms of matching. Uh, we have somebody from one of these blocks. We have five varieties, so it seems like a doable project. We need five kinds of services or clinicians or whatever. We have a Hispanic uh, patient, a Latino patient, so maybe Spanish is their first language, so we better have a provider who speaks Spanish, and then it's a done deal. You know, we, 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 we did the matching. Uh, what it ignores, of course, is under that rubric of uh, Hispanic or Latino, you have all the peoples of Central and South America, you know, who, who were um, the, the outcome, all the different identities who were the outcome of Spanish and, and Portuguese colonization of, of, uh, of the uh, Central and Southern America. So it's a kind of very crude approach. And in many societies, in Canada, for example, it's not been a popular approach, partly because we have hyper-diversity. We can't even in the U.S. they can't, but we're very aware we can't slot people into five categories. We've got dozens, if not you know, hundreds of categories at some level. Uh, and also because of an ideology of multiculturalism, which in some form Canada shares with Australia, which is a kind of explicit recognition that diversity is something that's valuable, that's positive, and it shouldn't be hived off in some corner somewhere. Like you're from this background, so go to that clinic over there. Uh, rather, it's this idea that uh, the kind of society we imagine is one where people are rubbing shoulders with each other, and they have different cultural backgrounds, and that's part of the liveliness and vitality of society, and it's even part of the collective identity on some level. That's what multiculturalism tries to, to make a virtue of that demographic reality and say, let's, let's conceive of our identity as this kind of a tapestry or a mosaic or a carrefour of different kinds of peoples. But then that poses a, a challenge, uh, which what tends to happen in Canada is a kind of default, again, toward the, the common uh, shared space and sometimes a kind of ethnocentric uh, colorblindness. Like we, we, we're all very liberal. We treat everybody the same. It's not a problem versus we have to find some way to engage with the particularity. So that's what's led to a, a, a range of approaches that try to talk about cultural competence, um, uh, cultural humility, and the sense of acknowledging that there's a lot we don't know about people's background, that we have to learn from them and work with them uh, around, or cultural safety, which uh, you know uh, uh, Maori nurses in New Zealand advanced, which involves recognizing the historical um, um, uh, situations that have created inequalities and power, problems of power and uh, that make it an unequal uh, encounter. And that means, means that the institutions have to make extra effort uh, to make the clinical encounter safe and open and uh, make it possible for the essential information to come out. And then most recently, there's been a movement towards structural competence, which sort of acknowledges that the diversity we're talking about is not just about people's self-conscious ethno-cultural identities or about the obvious differences between people from different places or backgrounds, but about the ways in which we are all positioned in social structures. And again, cultural safety speaks to that as well, uh, that have to be um, attended to. And I, I mentioned this earlier in terms of things like social class and uh, you know, uh, racism and so on that really are among the most powerful uh, impacts on people's uh, health and healthcare services. So that recognition that there's some uh, kind of uh, specificity that needs to be considered in assessing people and responding to them has led to the attempts to try to develop different frameworks and tools uh, so that one can have conversations with people that begin to clarify the context that they're living in. Uh, and uh, taking a step back, I guess, think more about how a service or institution functions 
uh, so that it is welcoming, so that there is the space structurally in terms of the time that people have, in terms of the availability of resources like uh, interpreters or culture brokers, so that clinicians can really get a clear picture of what's going on and therefore be able to respond more appropriately. When you think about mental health systems in high income countries, you know, you can look at the US and Canada and Australia and the UK and all sorts of other places. Those are very different systems. Where do you sit on the kind of evolution to revolution perspective? You know, do you think we should just start again with our mental health systems? I'm thinking about, you know, arguments around decolonizing the curriculum, for example. Do you agree with this idea of just throwing it all away? including, you know, things like DSM and just starting again with something which actually meets the needs of the population, the people that really need our help, who are currently completely excluded. Uh, well, I'm not, I'm not in favor of such revolutionary tactics uh, for the reason that, you know, in other spheres, revolutions often don't deliver on the ideals that they, they propose. And there are many reasons for that. First of all, I think there is, for all the flaws and for all the biases and for all the implicit vi uh, violence that occurs with our diagnostic system, with our practices, there is a lot of experience. There is a lot of um, effort that's been put into trying to get clear about some things. I'm not, you know, not, not in this totally unbiased way, but certainly I, I take seriously the idea that we have a, a body of knowledge. And when I work with a, a, a client, I present it that way that, you know, we've distinguished certain kinds of kinds of problems. A panic attack is different from uh, uh, experience of depression and they may co-occur, but we have ideas about what's going on in both. And we have certain tools or approaches or ways of understanding that. And certainly it helps us just to stick with the example of a panic attack, which is a simple, but, uh, you know, often terrifying experience for someone inherently. And when you just read the DSM description of a panic attack to somebody who's had one, they may be relieved. They may say, oh my God, you, that's exactly what I'm having. You know about this, do you? Okay. That's, we have some place to start. So that, that's a simple example of where there is some value for all the limitations and all the confusions and so on in the way that we've carved up this complex terrain. There is value in, in characterizing certain types of problems uh, with a light hand, with a light touch, and recognizing the fact that people don't come in these simple flavors, that they that people typically have more than one thing going on. Uh, you know, contemporary work and symptom network theory kind of takes a step back from these categories and says, let's just look at the wide range of things people present and look at how they're correlated. When you do that, you, you find new things, but you also recover some of the syndromes that are in the DSM or the ICD. So I don't think that they're completely empty of value. And I think the colonial issue is not so much about knowledge per se, uh, because knowledge can come from many sources, and I'm more of a pluralist than I am of a revolutionary in terms of let's just supplant one thing with another, but more about systems of power, and, and, and we could talk about epistemic justice, like who, who gets to, to make a knowledge claim, who gets to put something on the table, at least to, to open it up for looking at things. And I'm quite opposed to people who want to make the argument that science is a Western uh, colonial institution, and we should put it aside because it has uh, too many biases. I actually think science is an elaboration of universal uh, human uh, uh, abilities to, to do empirical things. I mean, to discover what makes something go, uh, you know, in a practical way. And we now just have many tools and many ways of elaborating that. Again, there are power issues, who gets access to those tools, who gets to publish in journals, et cetera, et cetera. But the basic epistemic um, uh, 
um, strategies that we have in science are very precious. And, you know, we have great evidence right now in the current COVID epidemic and the nonsense that's being purveyed online and that people are getting caught up in of just how incredibly important science is and having a sort of a more reasoned and careful basis to, to knowledge claims uh, that people make. So I would put uh, those epistemic issues um, uh, uh, um, sort of... Uh, frame them more in terms of power issues rather than uh, putting aside a whole body of knowledge. We need to be able to critique the knowledge. We need to be able to look at how to refine it and so on. And again, coming back to how should we completely rebuild the system? I mean, that would be putting aside all the infrastructure and all the efforts we have. What I would say is we have to have much more place for the voice of people with lived experience. And in particular, we need a shift from, some of us have argued that we need a shift from uh, the kind of profession-centered uh, or professional-centered and the disease and disorder-centered approach that exists in healthcare toward uh, a person-centered approach. I said beyond a patient-centered approach, which still sees people primarily in terms of what afflictions do you have, to a person-centered approach, which sees people as uh, living in a certain social world, having certain goals and values and, and um, priorities that a healthcare provider should be engaging with and negotiating with in terms of what they might have to offer to help the person. So that's a more uh, middle-of-the-road uh, position I would espouse. Let's change tack and let's talk about refugees. You know, this is a, a, a continuing problem on our planet, but certainly in the last few weeks, we've all been watching the news and looking at the people fleeing Afghanistan. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts on how well you, th you think mental health services provide for refugees currently and what we can improve for the current group of people fleeing Afghanistan. Uh, the first thing is to say that the largest um, um, sort of context to think about refugees is not a mental health context at all. It's a human rights context. And that's why we have a category of refugees is because of the dismal failures and responses of the human community, particularly in the Second World War when it was so stark and the things that happened were so uh, catastrophic. Uh, and, you know, a kind of resolution afterward, uh, the never again mentality at the level of international human rights and law. So that that was a very important and positive step in many ways. Not all countries embraced it to the same degree. And uh, sadly, I think it, it, we're at a moment when some of the, the impulse that came out of that historical moment has waned and being eclipsed by other issues. And uh, it's always been fraught in the sense that uh, refugees who were uh, more familiar, who were white, who were uh, whatever, had, had other kinds of markers that made them more acceptable to a particular receiving society were treated differently than people who are, were, um, you know, from whatever, who were racialized, who were from other places and so on. So that's always been a problem. But I think what's in the background right now is um, the fact that we are on the cusp probably of having a massive increase in displaced populations. We've had an increase already, but because of climate change, we're on the cusp of having truly orders of magnitude uh, greater. And I think there's some, uh, even for people who are not consciously thinking about this, there's some unease and intuition that this is coming. And I think battles are starting to be fought on how to build walls and how, how to erect barriers. So I want to mention that because that's the backdrop to the, the predicament that we see with refugees. Refugees are not only characterized by exposure to violence and trauma and, you know, all the things that come with that. They're, they're characterized by a certain kind of precarity 
and a certain kind of being caught in between, you know, of, of, of being stateless for a moment as they try to resettle somewhere. And that is a profoundly unsettling uh, mental health um, predicament, if you will. And one of the dilemmas in refugee health is to the extent that uh, people, well-intentioned people take charge of things uh, and, and provide things, they may not be addressing the fundamental need for the refugee to regain control over their life in some way. And we know from research in Australia and other places that being in this in-between place, waiting and, and having uncertainty and so on, is, a, is, is as trying or more trying than some of the violence that people have been experienced because i think human beings are designed uh, you know even biologically or evolutionarily to be able to endure and recover from violent events i mean human history has probably been you know when we were living in uh, rougher circumstances on the savannah or whatever i'm sure there was plenty of physical injury and violence and fear that people had to manage and we have systems biological psychological systems for adapting to those but uncertainty and unpredictability and lack of control over what happens next uh, particularly in a complex uh, social world uh, and particularly when it extends to one's family and one's relatives and so on, is profoundly corrosive and, and damaging to mental health. So me- refugee services have to take that into consideration. And again, we know from a lot of research that one of the most powerful things you can do for people is to give them uh, clear status. Yes, you're welcome here. You're here. You can get going. Give them an opportunity to work. Uh, give their kids an opportunity to go to school and have around them a picture of what the trajectory could look like over the next 10, 20, 30 years. I mean, both Canada and Australia are countries of settler societies. We have waves and waves of migration. People have generally done well, when and but it sometimes takes a generation for people to go from uh, you know, the ge- migrant generation, think of the earlier waves of people who maybe had not completed uh, uh, their formal schooling uh, to p- to successive generations who are getting well-educated and taking on, uh, you know, um, uh, well-paying jobs and, and uh, are are engaged. We have a common predicament now, not only with, with refugees, with immigrants in general, but it's compounded for refugees, of people who are underemployed, who are stymied in their various efforts to plan a trajectory forward in their in their lives and i think that's is as or more important than dealing with the trauma uh, that they may have experienced but of course the two things interact if you're very troubled by you know horrible things you've endured it may be hard to sleep and hard to concentrate and hard to use the skills that you have but if you're given a good opportunity to do it i dare say you'll find ways of managing your distress and still going forward so i think that's that's the challenge in general with refugee services not just what quality of mental health care are people getting uh the problem we've had in canada in the past was an early work that we did uh you know 20 years ago or so uh, longer 30 years ago with some of the uh, refugees coming at that time was a general tendency for clinicians not specialized in refugee care to not have a good mental image of where people were coming from because Canada is such a comparatively safe and, and simple place in terms of the, you know, the levels of, of, uh, of uh, chaos and, and violence people have to deal with in, in many parts of the world that the average clinician maybe over-attributed things people were experiencing over-attributed to their personality rather than to the circumstances that they were facing because they didn't have a clear enough mental image of what that was like i think that's changed i think with you know news media and so on we're we're all a little bit bombarded even if it's superficial we have a sense of you know the situation in afghanistan at, at this moment is 
you know, it's in people's, the imagery is there for people to kind of think about the, uh, the dilemmas and the uncertainty and the fear that people are living with. So maybe it's not quite so hard to imagine what people are going through. But again, to, to engage with that in a way that is not paternalistic, that is not taking care of people rather than giving them the tools to, to take care of themselves, to, to, to move their lives forward, I think is, a, is an important part of designing effective services. Let's talk a bit about your work um, with Indigenous peoples. Can you say something about the kind of collective trauma experience of Indigenous peoples for us? Well, so let me just backtrack for a moment to say that my own engagement with the, all of these issues that we're talking about comes from social and cultural psychiatry. So the basic assumption is we're all social and cultural beings. It's relevant for all of us. If we're from a dominant group, we take all that stuff for granted because that's the background. That's the that's the shared background. When we encounter people from somewhere else, we notice they they dress different, they talk different, they do this different. So suddenly those differences become salient and then we focus on them and for better or for worse. I mean, we may over-attribute things to those differences or we get so on. So that's the backdrop. So for me, all these different uh, areas where I've become engaged, uh, I come at them from that point of view, not as somebody who is an expert in that particular area or has some claim for, uh, you know, it's not my particular background. I mean, my grandparents were, I guess, Ref, before there was a category of refugees, they were you know forced migrants from pogroms in Eastern Europe to to Canada. So I had that little bit of of uh, imaginary connection or empathy or whatever with with you know some groups. Uh, and in the case of Indigenous people, I mean, I grew up in a city and uh, you know in a very um, uh, cosmopolitan environment, if you will. Uh, but in the early um, uh, late eighties, early nineties, I had the opportunity to become the psychiatric consultant for the Inuit in Northern Quebec. And the Inuit, as you know, are the people who used to be called Eskimos, which is not their word. Their word is Inuit, which of course just means the people. Uh, and uh, they live above the tree line in Quebec and they're, um, in uh, 14 communities in Northern Quebec. And I began going up several times a year to do consultations. And I was struck in that work by the high rates of uh, suicidality in particular among young people. So that raised a very important set of questions because it was, there was so much going on that it, it meant one had to think about this, not just at an individual level, obviously individuals are being affected, but there's some social process going on when you see, uh, you know, um, Thirty uh, percent of young people making a suicide attempt. Uh, something is going on in the context. So that fit again. I went there in the first place because I had this general interest, and this was a wonderful opportunity to begin to learn more in a very particular context. But then it forced me even more to think about that larger context. So that's a bit of personal history. It may or may not be relevant to the larger question. In the Canadian context, what what's important is that. Um, we have a significant portion of the population, four to five percent of the population, that identify as indigenous, uh, but it's many different diverse groups, as it is in Australia. Uh, so when you lump them together, and for a while we were using the term Aboriginal, it's still the term of law in Canada as Aboriginal, but there's a movement internationally to start using the word Indigenous more than Aboriginal for well, whatever reasons, for as a kind of collective term. Uh, but when you when you put people that, together in that category and you say what's common, uh, you you can make some arguments about what is inherent to indigeneity in terms of 
people of a particular place who have a long history, uh, often in their own creation stories since time began. Uh, in any event, it's for you know, many thousands of years, uh, even from an archaeological point of view, the people have been living in particular places, have an ecology, have a culture and belief system and spiritual system and so on, that in some ways is tuned to that particular context. Uh, and had then, in the case of the Americas, in the case of Australia and so on, have experienced colonization. That is, they've been in their place and they've been uh, invaded by people coming from elsewhere and then enclosed within a nation state that has generally been constructed without a lot of attention to what their own autonomy or aspirations were. And indeed, they've been uh, drawn into a global economy without much power over uh, how those uh, transactions occur. So the dilemma then is when you focus on indigenous peoples as a whole, to some degree, what you're talking about is not about indigenous peoples per se, but about the impact of colonization. So that's really a story about colonizers. And the irony is you, 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 you see these differences, you see these problems, and you tend to um, um, uh, attribute those to the indigenous person when probably you should be in, attributing those to the, the colonial system. Uh, and maybe we're really telling a story of the nature of colonization, but from the perspective of those who get ground up within it. So in Canada, uh, we have had a recognition starting in the 60s with work of historians and then uh, going on over uh, you know 50 plus years uh, of uh, what's now become public recognition uh, that we had systematic policies of exclusion and of oppression. Uh, notably the residential school system, Indian residential school system, which mandated that um, uh, Indigenous children uh, should go to uh, a boarding school, in effect, uh, so that they could learn to become good European Canadians. Uh, and, you know, Australia had a similar thing. The film Rabbit Proof Fence tells a bit of that story, kind of. Uh, and we know in Canada that, you know, close to 150,000 kids over a period of 100 years were taken from their homes. Sometimes uh, uh, parents um, encouraged them to go because they thought it would be beneficial. But in many cases, uh, kids were forcibly taken and experienced horrible privation and violence. The schools were run in Canada by uh, the churches, the government didn't have the money to really do this visionary program of, of uh, cultural uh, forced assimilation, essentially. So they were run by churches. They were run in a context in which uh, they were isolated. There was uh, segregation uh, by gender. There was a lot of violence, sexual violence by the um, the people who ran the school, but also lateral violence among students. Once you create that kind of environment, of course, all kinds of things are going on. And uh, in general, I mean, we had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that published uh, its report in 2015 that concluded that Canada had committed cultural genocide. So it's very strong language. That's been accepted by the government. Uh, there has been a whole process of trying to redress this. And we had earlier phases of this recognition and so on. We had a formal apology in the past and so on. So there've been efforts to try to address this. Now, what this has, what, what's been part of this whole process of sort of increasing public recognition has been a certain narrative account of what's been called historical trauma. And this idea originally comes from, uh, well, it was written about by Maria Yellowhorse Braveheart, a social worker who trained at Columbia University in the U.S., whose teachers were uh, people who worked a lot or in some cases were themselves uh, Holocaust survivors. So there was a, a direct connection between the efforts to theorize and understand the impact of the Holocaust 
on the particularly the Jewish population as, who ended up in New York City and other places and how people were understanding the generational and transgenerational effects of that kind of massive uh, scale of genocidal violence on people. And there was a, uh, a, a recognition that there were some parallels, but especially that the public recognition of the Holocaust, of the Shoah as a historical event was very important for people's ability to narrate their suffering, to be, get some basic recognition for what they've been through and so on, uh, and that that was a gradual and difficult process, that it, it took place through the late 50s and well into the mid-60s in the U.S. with you know, the, uh, uh, TV shows and movies and things that sort of became made this these historical events part of popular imagination to a large degree. So even though there's still a degree of Holocaust denial or whatever, it's pretty much accepted, at least in Western sort of Euro-American Euro other societies, that this is historical fact and, and one has to understand this. And that becomes the backdrop when you encounter somebody uh, in a hospital, you still very occasionally see people in our hospital who have a you know a number tattooed on their on their arm. Uh, there's a kind of shock of recognition, and people know. And something certain things don't even have to be said for there to be already a certain appreciation of the difficulties this person may have been through. That was not the case in Canada. It's certainly not the case even to this day fully for Indigenous people. And it's just a recent phenomenon that people are beginning to grasp just how profound and pervasive and overwhelming the uh, the effects of forced assimilation and marginalization and the racism and so on uh, have been on people's lives to this day. So um, the effort to sort of frame historical trauma, loss, and grief as a collective phenomenon has been an important political move, an important move to change the social imaginary in terms of how people can picture other people's lives and how they respond to that, and to give individuals within indigenous communities a kind of language for their own suffering and a way to relate their own suffering to these larger narratives. Uh, the problem with it is, I mean, and I, th I think that's a valuable thing, no question. Uh, the problem with it is that the things that our people are struggling with are not just in the past. They're not just things that happened to their ancestors. They're ongoing structural violence in society and ongoing everyday uh, microaggression, uh, people being disrespected and, and people having to you know, be, not be given the benefit of the doubt in everyday encounters and all kinds of things like this, which I, again, you know, in Australia is a major issue for Aboriginal people. So that's the dilemma, that on the one hand, yes, these historical events are important. They've had profound effects. The fact that it was whole cohorts of children that were taken from communities, it's very different than one person having trauma in a community. It is collective violence, uh, violence against a collectivity, uh, and it has repercussions at, at those levels. Uh, so that's the challenge, I think, for all of us working in mental health, too, that we much of our theory and practice is really oriented on the individual. You know, we think about individual psychological dynamics and psychiatry people deal with, in, you know, to some degree, biological theories that are highly individualistic. And yet the phenomena we're talking about are social phenomena and they've affected whole communities, whole peoples, whole nations, as it were. Uh, and we have to find the right concepts to work with so that we're somehow our individual work, which is still valid and important and, and you know, contributes to larger social change is somehow in dialogue with these larger, um, understanding of these larger processes. I, I want to give you just a very quick opportunity at the end here, just for, for a couple of minutes maybe, to just give us a, an advert for your talk at the conference in a couple of weeks' time. So you're speaking uh, at the 21st Australasian Conference on Traumatic Stress. 
I think you're talking on the first day, the Tuesday of that week. Yeah, it's like the opening plenary, I think. So I get to, which I think means that I have to give a broad uh, picture of things, I think, to be helpful. And I hope what I'll do, although I'll use specific examples from indigenous peoples, from refugees, from um, uh, from other kinds of uh, uh, international work, is to show both the commonalities and the specificity uh, to people's experience of, of violence and trauma and the process of recovery and healing. Uh, and in a way to make the point that, uh, and this is the way we think about cultural diversity at this point, it's not about cultural relativism as though people are totally different in different places, but it's the fact that culture suffuses everything we do. So that although at a very abstract level, we can talk about all kinds of universals, when we get down to actually doing work, we have to find the right language, the right metaphors, the right explanatory models that actually work for people. And that working is not just in terms of their own self-understanding. That's the psychological part. How does it work for the person and their own stories and their own uh, experiences themselves? But how does it work socially? And for that, I use the term ecology, ecological, not in the sort of um, uh, plants and, and uh, rivers and trees kind of uh, uh, view of ecology, although that's certainly relevant, but in the notion that human beings are embedded always in a social world uh, that involves other human beings, it involves the built structure, it invo involves the natural environment, and all of our thinking, all of our feeling, all of our healing is done in that kind of transactional, interactional way. So that kind of a systemic view that family therapy and uh, family theory and therapy have, have uh, advocated, but that we can take out uh, further even into the community and into larger networks, and the case of people who are mig uh, migrating even in terms of transnational networks, that that kind of picture of people and our individual functioning, our thinking and so on as being embedded in those networks is the best uh, starting place for building a particular partial picture of what's going on for someone that's useful in terms of engaging uh, with them. And that then gives us a very general framework that we can then build on, develop a more specific picture of the person in front of us and the people we're working with, the communities we're working with. So that's in general terms what I want to do. I'll use various examples. I hope to bring that alive. And what those examples do, among other things, is they show us that um, we have a, a theories of the biology of trauma, but trauma is also uh, about the stories that people tell and the stories they're allowed to tell and the stories they're not allowed to tell and the, the new stories they can imagine. Uh, so that level of human capacity for... Uh, uh, for narration, for circulating stories within communities, uh, for building forms of social life that are um, are sustained by those stories, that's a big part of what we need to be doing clinically. And I hope that that gives us a, a big space in which to bring together many different disciplines and many different perspectives we need to think about the context. And again, I've used in the title of my talk the word landscapes. You could take that again to mean context in a particular way, but a context that is a physical context, a context that is also an environment of ways of thinking about the problems that people go through. And that as clinicians, we need to broaden our perspective. We need to use what we already know. We know a lot already from our own backgrounds about how these things work, but we have to become more aware of it and use it more intentionally in combination with our specific psychological or, or biological or social theories of, of uh, human problems. <laughs>